So today my plan is to kind of just introduce you to the letter of Ephesians. And then I'm, I'm going to sort of do that by going through the first two verses of chapter 1. So this will kind of just uh, whet your appetite a little bit, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper when I'm up here next. I'm actually quite excited to study the book of Ephesians with you. Ephesians has had really a, a profound impact in, in sort of turning me towards the right path. To those of you that have heard my story and, and some of the college and career and seniors, you can tune out for a couple of minutes if you want. But when I was around uh, 19 or 20 years old, and that's now many, many, many years ago, I was at a, a point of my life back then when I was starting to get serious about where I was at with God. I had a probably what I would describe now as a little bit of an awakening. And it was right about that time that the pastor in my home church started a series on the church from Ephesians chapter 4. And I can still remember that that was probably the first time I ever really started taking serious notes during a sermon, notes about the sermon. I took other notes and different things, but uh, that was probably about the first time I ever started actually listening to the sermon and writing things down so that I could uh, study them later. And I think I still actually even have those notes somewhere. I, I saw them just a, a couple of years ago when we were packing packing some things up, but, uh, but that series had a profound impact on my life, and I was starting to soak it all in, and, and, and it was all starting to make sense for me. But what that time in Ephesians did for me was to sort of cast a huge, uh, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting vision of why God created the church, and how Christians fit into his design for the church. Still remember sitting there thinking, now, now that's something I want to be a part of. God used those sermons to ignite, for me, a desire to be part of what God was doing through the church. Now, I had no idea at that point that I would be a pastor. In fact, I think I've told you before, that's the last thing I thought I would ever do. But all I knew is that I wanted to be part of what God was doing through his church, and especially through the local church. Well, I'm praying that our time in Ephesians over the next number of months would spark that same desire for all of us. I know 99% of you will never be a pastor, but there are a host of, of different ways to be part of what God is doing through his church, and we'll, we'll see exactly that as we get to chapter 4 a little later on. But Ephesians is, is a lot about the church, but it's not just about this church, the church. It is firstly about God. And we can know a ton and learn a ton about what God has done for us and who God is through Ephesians, especially in chapters 1 to 3. We can learn about his sovereignty and salvation, about the riches of God's grace through his son, Jesus Christ, about God's great, amazing love in redeeming sinners, about God adopting a certain group of people to be his children, about how God adopted this group of people and formed them into a community called the church, about how God has equipped the church to relate to others within the church, including our families, about how God has equipped us to, to stand against evil. The letter is first and foremost about God. And so I'm praying that this series will, will also give us a grander vision of who God is and what he has done especially as he's done it through the church. But those two themes, the glory of God and the church, 
or what I kind of had in mind when I gave the, the series a title, To God Be Glory in the Church. Actually, I can't take credit for that title. It comes right out of Ephesians 3, verse, uh, the last verse there, chapter, verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus But I think that adequately says what I pray that you might all have as your takeaway for this series. My prayer is that you will see God in all his splendor and in all his glory through his son, Jesus Christ. And that you would see that one of the main ways that he is glorified is through the church, through this church. I pray that this letter encourages you to see that God has designed your Christian life to be lived out not apart from the church, not with the church as a, as a sort of an add-on, necessary add-on maybe even to your life, but that your Christian life is best lived out through the church. I pray that this letter helps you see that God is glorified and honored and revered and magnified as you function within the church. If you see the church as just the one of many parts of your life as a Christian, then you're settling for less than what God intended. And I might even go so far as to say, based on the next verses that we're going to be looking at, verses 3 and following, that your blessings are less than what God has intended them to be. Anyways, all that to say that this letter is about God, about God's gospel, about God's church. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote that there is nothing more sublime and majestic in the whole range of scripture than this epistle to the Ephesians. I had to look up what sublime means. Nothing more awe-inspiring and majestic in the whole range of scripture than this epistle to the Ephesians. He continues, Ephesians holds us face-to-face with God and who God is and what God has done. It emphasizes throughout the glory and the greatness of God. As we approach this study, he says, I seem to hear the voice that came out of old to Moses from the burning bush saying, take off your shoes from your feet for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. So Lloyd-Jones sees Ephesians as holy ground because it is so much about God and about God's glory. So with that, let's dive in today into this sublime and majestic book. It starts by introducing us to the writer of this letter there and to the recipients in verse 1 and then sort of an opening greeting there in verse 2, which is not very much different from the greetings in the rest of Paul's letters. But today we'll look just at some of the background of this letter through these first two verses. And so even though these verses are sort of a typical opening of letters in those days, they do give us some important lessons. From these two verses we can learn something of what it takes to press on in the Christian life. We learn this from Paul, we learn this from the recipients of the letter, and we learn it from the greeting. So what does it take to press on, to keep going as a believer, even when the challenges of living as a Christian seem overwhelming sometimes? Well, first, it takes a supernatural commission. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Right off the top there, you see that this is written by Paul. We now know that, that 
this was Paul the Apostle, but, but he really started out as, and this is an important part of even this first verse, he started out as Saul, the Christian persecutor. In Acts 7 and 8, we find him there approving the killing of Stephen, a deacon and, and, and the first Christian martyr. He's described there as ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. He was not just sort of uh, ambivalent towards the church. He was outwardly opposed to the church. He hated the church, which makes the fact that he absolutely raises the view of the church in Ephesians even more amazing. His transformation from church hater to church lover, you can read about that in, in Acts 9. There, on the way to drag off more Christians, that's what he was going to Damascus to do, he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And from that point on, his affections are changed forever, changed 180 degrees. Before, he ravaged the church. And now, he concentrates his, his full efforts on expanding the church. From where did he get this total reversal of roles? Well, in Ephesians 1.1, Paul understands that as coming by the will of God. And so Paul spends the rest of his life spreading the message of the gospel wherever he goes. And he does it at tremendous cost to himself. He actually becomes like those he ravaged before. He's repeatedly subjected to suffering. He's beaten. He's falsely accused. He, he, he literally gets dragged out of cities, just like he was doing to others. He's repeatedly imprisoned, and yet he focuses on his mission. And all this opposition refuses, in fact, it even helps him, but it refuses to distract him from the commission that Jesus gave him. He knew what he was sent to do, and he knew who it was that sent him. And he knew that the one that would send him, the one that sent him would provide what was needed for Paul to accomplish that mission. Well, one of the places he ends up is this city named Ephesus. He visits there for the first time. You can read about in Acts 18, very shortly, just one, one or two verses. But then he comes back again in Acts 19. And this time, he stays for about three years. If you read Acts 19, you'll see some amazing things happen while Paul is in that city. People are getting baptized. Miracles are happening. Mystical, magical practices are being renounced. The change was so amazing that it even affected some of the local businesses that had a stake in, in building shrines to false gods. And these local businesses got, got a little bit ticked off with what Paul was preaching and what his preaching was doing to their cash cows. Kind of sounds a little familiar with what happens here sometimes. But Paul eventually left Ephesus. And you can see his influence there in Acts 20. In Acts 20, he calls for the leaders of the church in Ephesus and, and gives them a farewell message. But when he leaves, it says there at the end of Acts 20 that there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him because they would not see his face again. Why were they so emotional? They were emotional because Paul, God had used Paul to transform their lives. This is part of the same group that Paul then later writes Ephesians to while he's in, in prison in Rome 
maybe six or seven years after he last saw them there in Acts 20. So even though he faced constant opposition, even though he underwent tremendous hardship, Paul kept going because he was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. What was the source of his strength? Why could he keep going? Well, it was the fact that his strength and his calling was, was not something that just all of a sudden came to Paul. It was God all of a sudden calling him. He was a God-appointed messenger. He was sent by God. He was sent as a messenger with a divine message. In other words, his resolve came from the fact that he was sent to preach God's word, God's message. His message was not his own. It was the word of God. And so when Paul preaches and when Paul writes this letter, he's writing under the authority and the inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit. Paul's ministry was distinctly God-centered, Christ-centered, and word-centered. It carried a sense of, of, of weightiness simply because Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's entire work in Ephesus was focused on the word. When he was initially with the elders, Acts 19.10 says that during the time that he was with them, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And when he meets with the elders of the Ephesian church, he says there in chapter 20, verse 24, I do not count my life any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus Christ, which was to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His ministry was the word of God. Or three verses later in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul's ministry had a single focus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, to declare the whole counsel of God. He had an almost reckless abandon in pursuit of that mission, even to the point there of not counting his life of any value when he put it against carrying out his mission as an, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Do you value God's word like that? Maybe you underestimate its power. But listen, that same reckless abandon that allowed Paul to keep going is available to you. If you're a, a believer, then the same word that Paul preached, that same word that he wrote down, is still there for you by the inspiration of the Spirit. It's come 2000 late, almost 2,000 years later to us. You carry that same message. And you can go forward in the power of God's word. Ephesians 4 tells us that God has given the church teachers and preachers of the word to equip you so that you will grow in your faith and in your endurance. You will grow in your knowledge of God. So allow yourself to be regularly exposed to God's word and to submit to God's word as it is taught in a church. Put yourself under the regular teaching of God's word. And as you do that, you will be transformed too. That's what God's word does transforms our lives, transforms our behavior. And Ephesians 4.14 says that when you do regularly sit under the teaching of God's word, you will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine. God's word helps you traverse through the rugged waves and, and through the strong winds that the world uses to try to toss you up and, 
and, and trip you up. And so Paul was able to press on because of the word of God. But secondly, it was the will of God that allowed him to do that. He was an apostle by the will of God. Paul may well have been thinking back to his salvation and to his pre-Christian life when he wrote this. He knew full well that he couldn't be who he was and that he wouldn't be doing what he was doing were it not for the will of God in, in calling him and in commissioning him on that road to Damascus where Jesus opened his eyes to the gospel. Paul knew he had become who he had become only because of the will of God. And he knew he could keep doing what he was doing, even with a, a ton of obstacles in his way, everywhere he went. He knew he could keep doing what he was doing only because of the will of God and saving him and calling him and commissioning him for this task. See, Paul, at one point, was an enemy of God. Paul was opposed to the gospel. Paul even calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul hated Christians. But right when he was at the height of his anger and his hate, God blinded him on the road to Damascus, and then he opened his eyes, and then he commissioned him. Paul knew that that amazing transformation would never have happened had God's will not literally exploded into his life. It's amazing what happens to a person when God wills that someone be saved. One of the best parts of being an elder here is that we get to hear people's testimonies when they apply to become members of the church. And uh, on Tuesday, we'll be voting three people in, into membership. But all three, Alan, Nell, Charissa, had me almost tearing up, tears of joy, when they talked about how God had radically changed their hearts. That kind of change, that kind of reversal in life's trajectory can only happen by the will of God. And they know that. I'm sure many of you could share how the only explanation for your new life was that God stepped in and, and radically altered the course of your life. It's that knowledge that fueled Paul to keep going. If he could do that for Paul, God will also help us face the challenges that the gospel brings because we are secure in knowing where our calling and our commission came from. So it takes a divine commission, but it also takes a divine separation. Paul writes this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. There at the end of verse 1. A saint is a, is a Christian. For some of you, when you think of saints, you might think of you know, really, really holy people. Only real special people get to be called saints. In fact, I just read an article, came across an article on, on CBC on Friday, where it says that the Pope named another saint. Brother Andre, I think his name was. And he became the 11th Canadian saint. Well, I'm here to tell you that all of you who are Christians in this room, a number more than 11, and you are all saints. There's not only 11 saints in all of Canada. That's not what Paul had in mind, nor is it what the word means. A saint is anyone who has been set apart by God, not by the Pope, for God. It is someone who has been separated from another group of people by God. And so who is, who is it that Paul is writing to? 
He's writing to all the Christians there in Ephesus. He's writing to everyone who had been set apart by God. In the Old Testament, God separated a certain group of people called the Hebrews for himself. And that's why I had Pastor Rain, Wayne read from uh, Leviticus this morning. These people were distinct. They were marked out, marked out. They were set apart from the rest of the people. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. And that was the Old Testament. That's what God did. He separated a group of people for himself. But it was more there a physical and an ethnic thing. But when we get to the New Testament, God uses this, this same sort of language of separation to talk about a spiritual separation. In the New Testament, God makes holy, uh, an incorrect English way of saying it is that God holifies a certain group of people. He sets apart, he separates, he, he sanctifies, he, that's where we get the word, he sanctifies to himself another group of people, people that he chooses, just like he chose Israel. If you peek down there at verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul tells us how this happens. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy, it's the same root word, and blameless before him. So all Christians are saints, and all saints are Christians. He's writing to all those that God has granted repentance from sin through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you're a Christian, this letter has you in mind. If you have been set apart from God, and that itself is, is good news for you. If you're struggling to keep going in your Christian life, if you're facing challenges because of your faith, you can be encouraged just by knowing that you have been separated by God, for God, through Christ. You belong to him. You can be bold and unashamed in your faith like Paul was. You can endure hardship and suffering like Paul did. You can face opposition like Paul did and like these saints were going to do. Implied in those words, saints in Ephesus, is that there is opposition. Ephesus was a, was a nasty and immoral city, as a, I was reading a little bit about the background this week. It was, it was marked by the crudest kind of idol worship, complete with temple prostitutes. So for someone to be a saint in Ephesus, for someone to try to be distinct in that culture meant that there would be automatic opposition and persecution. We saw what happened to Paul and the apostles and the disciples there in Acts 19. Paul's mission threatened their sale of idols, and so they started a riot. Now, even though we're almost 2,000 years later, our culture is not that much different. And whenever the saints decide to live out their distinctiveness, which we don't do often enough, likely, we can be sure there'll be opposition and there'll be ridicule. Or at best, we'll, we'll just be shunted aside as not having a, a sort of relevant voice in sort of our, our postmodern pluralistic uh, culture. But we shouldn't be scared of that. If you've been separated by the God of the universe, you can be sure that no, no ultimate harm will come to you. God is for you. Yes, they can harm your body. Yes, they can harm your reputation, but they can't harm your soul. So press on. Keep going. Take risks for the gospel. Take a stand for the gospel. Ephesians 6 is going to tell us later on to stand firm. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, 
You are a saint in Wetaskiwin. You have a divine commission. You have a divine separation. Well, the third thing that we can learn from these verses about what it takes to press on is that it takes a powerful affirmation. Grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. With this sort of simple yet very profound greeting, Paul gives us a summary of our message, a a synopsis of our hope, a reminder of what God has done in saving us. The strength of our message, the The power of our new creation life in Christ is based 100% in grace and peace. The grace and peace that come from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is grace? Grace is God sending his son, making it possible for us to be rescued from our helplessly sinful condition. In God's free kindness, he, he graced us, he gifted us, undeserving as we are, unable as we are to help ourselves with the way. Graced us with the way. He graced us with the truth. He graced us with the life which gave us the only way to the Father. Grace to you. Paul will come back to the subject of grace often in Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 6, he says, God raised us up with him, with Christ, so that in the ages to come, he might know the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Or chapter 4, verse 7, to each one of us, he's talking to the church here, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And Paul was touched by God's grace in his own life too. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so Paul knew that he was 100% dependent on God's grace. Dear Christian brother and sister, do you recognize that you are who you are because of God's grace? grace, this truth should humble you. When you recognize that grace comes from somewhere outside yourself, it leaves no room for for bragging, saying that I did it. I made it. No. God did it. That should be your boast. God made it possible. And so be humble, knowing that you could never get there by your own works. It's in the humble testimony of God's gift of grace that there is strength to press on when the obstacles seem huge and overwhelming. What is it that Jesus says to Paul when he has the thorn in the flesh? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Well, the other part that Paul includes in this greeting is is peace. Just like we can be strengthened by the reality of God's grace in our lives, we can also be strengthened by the reality of the peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus gives peace must mean that at one time, we were not in a position of peace with God. We were at war with God. How were we at war? It was our sin. Our sin pits us square against the holy God. 
So how did God deal with that? How does God not hold our sin against us? Well, the answer again is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus achieved our peace with God by coming to earth as a man, by coming to earth as our representative. He never sinned in his entire life. Yet when he went to the cross, he absorbed God's punishment for our sins, not for his sins, for our sins. And now, through someone else, through Jesus, fully God, fully man, through his death on the cross as, as our substitute, and through our trusting in what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we have peace. Ephesians 2.13, In Christ Jesus, you who are far off, talking to us as Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Continuing on there in verse 15, by, he becomes our peace by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the divide, the fact that we were enemies, thus establishing peace. When we reflect on what God has accomplished for us through his son, how can we not want to press on? Grace to you in peace is indeed a powerful affirmation. This should be the, the constant song, the constant chorus of our lives. Our entire hope, our entire hope lies in what God has done for us freely, granting us grace and peace. Now I know there might be some of you in this room even looking at your lives and thinking, I'm not sure I've experienced what Paul is writing about here. And God might be opening your eyes right now for the very first time, just like he opened Paul's on that Damascus road. And you're starting to understand God's word. You realize that you might still be in a position where you are at war with God. You might have thought that your, you know, your future would just take care of itself as long as you do a, a few good deeds along the way. I hope that as you've been listening this morning that you've realized that that just won't cut it before a holy God. Trusting in your good deeds won't cut it because you are already dead in your sins. The only way to ensure your future is to trust not in your own performance, whether that be in the sacraments or whether that be in being a good person. The only way to ensure your future is to put all your hope, not in what you accomplished in your life, but in what God accomplished for you by his son's death on the cross. I would just appoint you, point you ahead to, to chapter 2. Verse 1 there says that you were dead in your sins, but just a later, little later it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. My friend, you can claim those words for yourself if you repent of your sins and if you turn to Christ, trusting totally in his sacrifice on the cross for you. If you want to know more about that, or if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. Just come and talk to me. I'll be hanging around the back after the service. But being a Christian in this world is not easy for you that are believers. As long as we are on this side of heaven, there will be struggles. There will be challenges. There will be trials. That's all part of life in a fallen world. Paul had challenges. These people in Ephesus had challenges, and we will have challenges. So these sort of bottom line truths from the first little bit of Ephesians are a great reminder for us and a great encouragement for us. 
Sometimes it's good to, to sit back and think about what it would be like had God not opened our eyes to understand his word. Had he not called us? Had he not set us apart? Had he not granted us faith and grace and peace? Paul knew what God did in overcoming his rebellion and his lawlessness and anger and pride. He knew he was undeserving of God's grace. Yet God overcame all that in his life. And he overcame your sin and your rebellion and your pride as well. And if God can do that for you, then you can be assured that God will help you meet any of the challenges and the obstacles that you face in this life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how, how thankful we are for your grace and for your peace. And when we look back at our lives, we realize that we were at war with you because of our sin and because of your holiness. Lord, we pray that this reminder of your work, your accomplishments in our lives would help us first to think more highly of you, to think greater thoughts of you, to exalt you, to praise you, to worship you. But we pray that that knowledge of, of your calling on our lives and, and that your will which came to save us, your saving grace, your your reconciling peace would encourage us when, when our trying to live out our Christianity brings opposition and brings hardship, brings discouragement. We pray that these words, that these reminders would serve again to encourage, encourage us and to strengthen us for the task of bringing the gospel to a dying world. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.